Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, January 6th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor, Y. Chan Bui. Hey, everyone. HT, uh, news is still pretty light out there. You know, we're like a week into the new year. There's like Keanu Reeves is in talks to star in Martin Scorsese's The Devil in the White City, which is a TV show, and like... Josh Hartnett is in Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer movie. Like, I, I love that Josh Hartnett is out here thriving, but this is not exactly the type of news that can sustain a full episode of the show. So, let's uh, talk a little bit about Josh Hartnett. What are we going to call it? Is it the Hartnett Assange? Because that kind of doesn't <laughs> roll off the tongue. The Hartnetting. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm, yeah, I like the heart knitting. That's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, he was great in Wrath of Man, the new, the Guy Ritchie movie that came out within the last year or so. So uh, yeah, I, I love Josh Hart and I'm glad to see him working. But um, yeah, like I said, not really a ton to talk about there. We don't know who he's going to be in this new movie. So instead of, uh, of trying to dissect news that doesn't really give us much to chew on, let's just uh, talk about some more stuff that we've been up to. Um, there's some sort of unfortunate news on your end. Uh, what have you been up to re- recently? Yes, I've been infected with the round boy, <laughs> Mr. Corona himself. Oh, oh no. How are you, HD? Well, I'm not dead yet. I'm getting better. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm currently in isolation in my parents' basement. Uh, I got it on Saturday, and I basically have completely recovered. It's the Omicron variant variant has been much more uh, contagious than previous variants, but it's also been much milder. Like I haven't had many symptoms apart from early on when I had a cough and uh, fatigue and weirdly body aches. But um, I my cough is basically gone now, and I'm I'm back to one hundred percent essentially. So now I'm just oh. here in isolation. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Did, did anybody else in your family catch it? Mm. Yeah, well, uh, so I've I'm, I'm been staying at my parents' place and my grandma lives with them, which I was very concerned about because I was like, oh mm-hmm. my God, I don't want to infect my grandma, even though everyone is vaxxed and, and boosted. Um, but basically it happened at a family party with my uh, one of the sides of my family and uh, it, with 
there was more than 20 people is what I'll say. And it was just one person there who was basically patient zero and everyone mm-hmm. got infected. I, I, ha- I didn't even want to go to this party, by the way. I was like, I don't know if we should go. I just came from New York. I'm kind of like really bad right now. I was like, maybe, maybe we should have it outside because it's actually nice weather. And I was like, oh, but it takes so much time to, t- to set tables up outside. I was like, okay, we can open some windows. And I even spent most of my time outside. This is what I get. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's rough out there right now, and uh, I'm sorry that happened, HC. I'm really glad that you're feeling better and, and you're doing okay. Um, uh, it, I, and I'm also glad that, like, you know, as far as I know, you didn't, like, lose your sense of smell or anything like that, right? No, I didn't lose my sense of smell. I didn't even get a fever, so that was pretty good. Ooh, okay, good stuff. All right, so let's let's transition into potentially some more uh, lighthearted topics. What have you been reading recently, HC? Well, I read – I think I mentioned this on the podcast a couple weeks ago. I'm not sure if I did, but I picked up a, a book, a Her, Haruki Murakami book from the street. This is not where I got COVID. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I think you did mention this. Yes. Um, and I finally got to reading it. And it's a very fast read. It's only 200, 300 pages. Um, and this is After Hours by Haruki Murakami. And uh, it's one that I actually hadn't read, but I think it was published in around 2006 or something. Um, and it's it's really, really excellent. It's just this kind of short book of little vignettes of um, a bunch of people kind of wandering around Tokyo in the, the after hours, after midnight, and uh, what kind of strange things occur during those, those um, you know, what kind? Of, what are they called again? Like the, the witching hour. The witching hour. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's very much a book that takes place in like the liminal spaces, which is very Murakami, um, kind of surreal. You're not sure what's happening. So I really really enjoyed it. I actually quite liked the character writing in this one too, because I feel like, especially recently, Mur- Murakami has softened a bit because a, a lot of his characters from his early classic works um, are kind of ciphers. And in this case, in a lot of his recent books, there there are a lot there's a lot more to them. They're, they feel more flesh and blood than just kind of um, you know, surrogate prota- uh, protagonist for the audience. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I have not read any of Murakami's stuff. I did watch Drive My Car, which is sort of like loosely based on uh, one of his short stories, I guess. So mm-hmm. um yeah, that, that's cool. I mean, I, I don't have anything to com- to uh, to base that on or, co- or compare that to in my own experience. But hopefully, the listeners out there who are much more familiar with his work than I am uh, will get something out of that. So that's it's called After Hours. After Hours. Excellent. All right, uh, what have you been watching recently, HC? Well, before I was laid down with uh, Mr. Corona, I got to see West Side Story in theaters, and uh, it, it's great. Steven Spielberg. He did it again, that son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. <laughs> um, yes. I was surprised by the changes he made, pleasantly so, to the original film, which I've only seen the the original film and not the stage musical. So I didn't realize that the original film also made its own changes. But there were a couple of changes that uh, with like the song's uh, placements throughout the, the musical that changed and intensified things a lot. And that was really intriguing to me, like especially the song Cool, which in the mm-hmm. original, the first film, uh, takes place after the rumble. Um, and in this case, it takes place before. And I really, really liked what he did with that and how that really made it more of a character-based, uh, intense song than just, say, uh, a mood song as it, as it mm-hmm. was in the uh, the first film. So I really like that. Yeah, absolutely 
adored this film. The colors, the movement, the dance, it's just uh, incredible. I think Ansel Elgort is a weak spot both um, acting-wise, presence-wise, and, you know, person-wise. A lot of the time I couldn't <laughs> get over the fact that, ugh, you know, he's been – he's allegedly a sexual – either assault or a harasser. Um, it's a sex pest. Yeah. So I was – I it, I couldn't completely buy into the romance of it all just because I was like, ah, oh, it's Elgort. But um, – and I think that he was also just a weaker performer compared to all of the, like, Broadway stars that are in this um, in this movie. But mm-hmm. I overall enjoyed it. I think it was just a, a great time at the movies. Yeah, I fully agree. One of the um, the changes that I liked the most was uh, Tony's backstory, like mm-hmm. having him essentially pull a Dom Toretto and like almost beat somebody to death and, and uh, you know, be in prison and sort of separated from his gang. And, and sort of, uh, I think that helps like underline the difference between the, the mental difference, that sort of personality difference between Tony and Riff. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a really, uh, you know, a, a relatively easy change that was made. Like it didn't necessarily alter the, the fabric of what West Side Story is. Um, it was a sort of a simple change, but an effective one, I thought. Yeah, I think so too. Because otherwise, I honestly don't remember Tony much from the original film either. So Tony's always been kind of a blank spot for that yeah. musical as it was. Uh, mm-hmm. But otherwise, it just kind of made it feel like he just outgrew the gang, which is a weird a thing that you can't really – that doesn't seem realistic that you like outgrow a gang. You can just stop being part of a gang. And yeah. here it felt much more life or death kind of stakes, which you know feeds into the entire climax of the, the musical. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So what else have you been watching? Uh, well, since I've been in isolation, I've been both catching up on uh, best of 2021 as well as catching up on shows that I haven't seen uh, and missed a couple years ago. First up, Pig, the Nicolas Cage starring quote-unquote revenge thriller. Uh, not at all revenge thriller. And I think to say that it's a culinary John Wick is completely misleading. Uh, if anything, it's more of the Anton Ego flashback from Ratatouille turned into a meditation on grief and also a subversion of the revenge story. Um, and I think it's fantastic. I th- Honestly, this snuck in as one of my favorites of the year. Nicolas Cage is incredible. He's so haunting and bruised and weary and lonely. And I just absolutely love just how steady uh, and assured this movie was. And um, it's, yeah, fantastic movie that is streaming now on Hulu. If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly, highly recommend. Um, I also, on on Twitter, (laughs) um, compared it to You Were Never Really Here, which is another film that I think excellently, does an excellent job of deconstructing the sort of revenge thriller mythos, um, that sort of taxi driver, lone wolf type of story. And mm-hmm. so that's why I compared it, I, I kind of compared it to like a mix between You're Never Really Here and um, the Anton Ego flashback in, in Ratatouille. But um, it's it's just a fantastic film. Yeah, I think that's the best way I've heard anybody describe this movie yet. So hopefully if anybody's out there and has heard us like maybe mention this movie and, and have not dug into it yourself, that that is like the best uh, encapsulation, I think, of like the, the tone that this movie tries to strike, which as HT just mentioned, is extremely different than the John Wick kind of conversation that I think is surrounding it. So uh, yeah, this is also one of my favorite movies of the year, HT. I just, I 
I was not expecting it at all, and it just sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. So, yeah, um, and I great, feel bad because I know Chris has been singing its praises for like nine months <laughs> yeah. now, and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah that sounds good, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Oh, man. Uh, it, you know, I just I watched the trailer, and I was kind of like, oh, this is just going to be like another run-of-the-mill neon movie. Like, mm. you know, it just sort of has that like a very familiar aesthetic from the trailer, but um, the way that it sort of like actually engages with these ideas that it, it grapples with, uh, I just thought was, yeah, really masterfully done. So, and I think it might be, is it a, a, a first time filmmaker or it's, it's very early on in whatever that the director's career I anyway. I think it so. is a first time filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. Super impressive stuff. Okay. Uh, TV wise, what have you been catching up with? Hi guys, I finally watched Daredevil season three. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like five years ago or something yeah, 2019 apparently and oh, wow. okay. yeah Not that my ago. friend has been harping me about watching it ever since it came out in 2019 but i think i was i was kind of off of the the netflix marvel train by then because i had watched i really enjoyed first two seasons of daredevil i really enjoyed uh jessica jones was kind of meh on luke cage didn't even watch iron fist and um by the time Defenders came out, I was completely just like done with that whole universe. Cause like Defenders sucked. It was terrible. Um, but uh, so I think Daredevil season three came out after Defenders and I was like, oh, I don't really care about this anymore. Uh, despite some of the raves that I was hearing online and my friend always harping on me about it saying it's really good. It's the best one. I'm like, okay, sure. So <laughs> since I'm in isolation and, I was, and um, Daredevil has been back in the conversation uh, for two different reasons, one of which being a movie with a certain uh, web slinger. Uh, sorry. Anyways, <laughs> and also a a, t- a Disney Plus TV series with a, with a certain Marvel Archer. Um, I was like, you know, I should just check out Daredevil season three and uh, see what all the fuss is about. Three years after it came it came out, and guys, it's it's great. Honestly, it's the best season of all of the Marvel Netflix shows. And coming back to this universe after having watched so many of the Disney Plus shows and being really un- unimpressed with a lot of the action and then, of course, the third, the, the, the finale sort of bombast that ends in a big CGI punch out, I was just, it's just night and day to see the action in Daredevil next to the Disney Plus action. It's incredible this uh, daredevil season three um i feel like ever since that first hallway fight in season one the show has to try to outdo itself and does it always has a hallway fight and that's kind of fun and but i felt like it couldn't re- um recapture the excellence of that first hallway fight but daredevil mm-hmm. season three does it by having an 11 minute long long take in which Charlie Cox just like drags his bloody body through this prison, these prison corridors. And it's two action sequences that are sandwiched, well, that sandwich a dramatic sequence, uh, like dialogue sequence. And it's incredible. It's just, it's so expertly done. Charlie Cox is, Cox is so committed. And it's just, this, it's just got that kind of visceral, tactile action that I've really been missing from marvel movies and shows recently and it was just very refreshing to see that again and i was like wow i really wrote off a lot of the the netflix shows just because i think it is the model i think it is the streaming model the binge and then forget about it model because if daredevil season three had been released week to week as the disney plus shows had we would have been talking about it a lot longer Mm -hmm. and uh it's just um it's excellent stuff the storytelling is is great too and while i do think it suffers from 
what a lot of the Netflix Marvel shows had in terms of just uh, um, dragging out a five-episode story over 13 episodes. Uh, I, it's definitely the best told of of the seasons. It's it's great. It didn't feel like there was too much of um, long stretches of nothing. So Daredevil season three, really good, guys. So I fully agree with you that the Disney Plus Marvel stuff has been lackluster in terms of action. Like maybe there are a couple little bright spots spread across all of the shows that have come out thus far. But I tapped out of watching, I tapped out of the entire Daredevil experience after like two episodes of season one. I just couldn't get into it. I never went back and revisited it. But I'm curious what you think about the the action in Daredevil season three compared to something like Shang-Chi, which I know is getting a lot of raves at that time and i sort of felt like yeah yeah this is like okay there, there are some good moments in here too but it's not necessarily like the raid or anything yeah, so have we talked um, about shang chi because i've been i was very middling on it i liked it enough but um i felt like there's a weightlessness to the shang chi action yeah and yeah, i, I think it that. has to do with the fact that this was basically a very disney hollywood version of a wuxia martial arts film and while the passion is there i don't think that the weight both thematically and actually physically is there. Yeah. I mean, it's like almost unfair to be like, I want this movie to feel like, uh, you know, police story two, or like one of the, the Jackie Chan movies where he would actually, you know, really physically be on the side of a, of building super high up, you know, actually going through the, um, the scaffolding and, you know, swinging around on bamboo and stuff like it, it's clear that the Marvel stuff is like, it's that, but they're only a few feet off the ground and the rest of it's enhanced by CG and whatever. Like it's almost, it's almost unfair to sort of compare those two because they're just like, they're totally different experiences, but because the Marvel thing is trying, Shang-Chi specifically is trying so hard to capture that aesthetic and that vibe and like call back to those moments from like Hong Kong action cinema, it just feels it feels like they're inviting the comparison. Like, I, I don't want to make this. You're forcing me to make this comparison and you don't look great in, you know, in the end, you know? Yeah. No, they're definitely inviting the comparison. And I think that in when you do compare, it kind of is like a pale imitation of the real thing. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that you, you enjoyed Daredevil season three, even though it is a few years late. Uh, I wonder if, if there is a way that... Um, you know, maybe with the multiverse or something, uh, I, I still have yet to see Spider-Man Far From Home, but I know that with that and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness coming up, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, potential for like maybe bringing back some of these characters. And and I hope that if they do um, decide to continue telling Daredevil stories with Charlie Cox, that they're able to, to sort of uh, keep that through line going of like, at least the action sounds like something that everybody appreciated in that Netflix show, even if a lot of the Netflix stuff sort yeah. of... I kind uh, of dropped off. I I'm kind of feel like it's it's inevitable that they're gonna do like a mini series or something on Disney Plus with Charlie Cox as Daredevil or something. Mm-hmm. I, this is just my theory, but um, I I kind of dread to think what they'll do to the character because the the show the Netflix show is just so brutal and it's so hard hitting and it it has that that tactileness to the, the both the action and just kind of the feeling of it that I feel like when Disney gets his hand on it, it's gonna kind of get the marvel makeover um so i mean but if he gets a makeover that and finally gets a good costume maybe that'll work out because like the disney (laughs) plus marvel shows are basically makeover uh shows anyways like yeah what do they all end in everyone gets a new costume (laughs) 
<laughs> we gotta sell those toys somehow <laughs> hd uh all right well, let's talk about the witcher season two i I, I think i watched the first three episodes of the witcher season one i remember you enjoying the first season what do you think what did you think about season two i think season two is a big step up over the first season because while i liked the first season i had kind of my hang-ups with it i think it was uh i don't remember if you what you remember of the first season but there's like three different timelines and I didn't clock into the fact that there were three different timelines until like the second episode or maybe the third episode in. And I was like, what's going on here? And the visual language, first of all, is not very clear between those different timelines and the storytelling I think suffers because of that. Um, And while I enjoyed the characters in it, I was just kind of not really tuned into the entire world building and the character arcs that were happening. I was just like, this is nice. Henry Cavill's having a good time. He's grunting half the time. Um, and his grunts were very expressive. But I think season two is is a big step up. Uh, Geralt, Henry Cavill's character, has a big arc in which he's basically a, a doting dad now. And he's a big softy. And I really enjoyed seeing that uh, in his character and that change. And um, while I'm still not as... I guess, invested in this world as I am with a lot of other fantasy shows. Um, I'm I'm having a good time. It's a fun time. I'm mostly doing my crosswords because I got a big crossword book for Christmas (laughs) while catching up on these shows. And um, so that's just kind of my – that's the energy I'm trying to bring into 2022. Nice. <laughs> That's great. Uh, okay, so I just have a couple things that I wanted to mention really quickly. I finished Pen15. HD, have you caught up with Pen15? No, that'll be next for me while I'm in isolation. Oh, man. This show is so, so good. I forget. How far into it have you gotten? I or have you started it? Okay. Oh, my God. So I remember you talking a lot about... Um, now I can't remember the plus name of the movie. Oh, no, plus uh, one, sorry. Not plus plus eight. one, yes. Uh, <laughs> plus eight, it's a whole different movie. Um, yeah, Maya Erskine was in this movie called Plus One that Aishi that and I both enjoyed. It's sort of like a, you know, a relatively light uh, sort of rom-com from a, a couple years ago that was pretty good. But she is just so, so like, I mean, she's just incredible in Pen15. Uh, her and uh, Anna Conkle are the sort of co-creators of the show. And it finally wrapped up its second season. It, it split its uh, second season into two parts. And just recently in the past few weeks, um, the, the second part came out and then news came out that the show was basically done. Um, I think they technically have left the door open that like maybe they could come back years from now and, and pick it up again if they want to. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, the show is uh, has reached its end. And um, it's just a, a beautiful piece of television. It's like one of the the best uh, shows of the past several years, I think. It, it taps into like a such a specific... Um, I use the word milieu on one of an earlier episodes of the podcast this week. And I, I want to use that again here. Cause it's just like, it captures this time period so well of like the turn of the century and just, um, th- that experience of being, uh, you know, a 13 year old outcast in junior high and, and sort of like what that whole, um, really super weird time in your life is like, and, uh, it's just such a creative and, and, um, uh, emotional show that I think you're really going to love it, HD. So uh, if you give it a shot, I, I would love to know what you think about it. But um, I'm going to give the, it a shot, but I feel like I've been kind of needing to put myself in a good place for this because I know it's cringe comedy and I know it's going to be extremely, extremely relatable to me because Maya Erskine, Erskine or Erskine? I think Erskine. Erskine uh, is, you know, an Asian American woman growing up in the 90s. And I feel like I will relate too much to this where I will just (laughs) need to step away (laughs) from it for a little bit. So I'm preparing myself. 
it's so so well done like the yeah the thematically and the the subject matter that they touch on i mean it's it sounds like it could be a joke a gimmick from the the premise which is like these two 30 something year old women playing versions of themselves as 13 year olds but it is uh it has such a um a heart and like a dramatic heft to everything that they're doing um it is often very 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 funny but it's also like a a real genuine show that actually um, cares a lot about its characters. So uh, Pen15, it's on Hulu, both seasons now, I guess technically the only seasons. Uh, but man, I, I was just so impressed with the ending. Um, it it goes to some places at the very, very end. And uh, I was worried about it for a second there, but it, it really like sticks the landing in a really fascinating way. So Pen15, check it out. And then finally, uh, HA, you will be happy to know that uh, as I promised not too long ago, I am finally kicking off 2022 by going through the directorial works of Hayao Miyazaki. Um, so uh, I talked about um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind the other day on the podcast. And uh, last night I watched Castle in the Sky for the first time. And uh, really enjoyed it. I mean, it's like there's a there's a moment where uh, the movie sort of dips into a little bit of a a sci-fi premise. These giant robots show up and start like just completely obliterating uh, areas of countryside and this like fortress and everything. This stones exploding and it's just like all out chaos. Um, And I kind of wished in that moment that the movie would have decided to focus a little bit more on these two characters, these two children who are at the center of the story and like letting them, uh, you know, explore the giant castle in the sky that they discover. And, and sort of um, there's a moment when they arrive on the castle where it's like really quiet and it's just sort of typical Miyazaki stuff of just like appreciating these moments of nature and, um, and the, the uh, spectacular views and, and like letting the wind blow your, through your hair. And this movie is very um, loud in comparison. It doesn't have that many of those type of moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm always, um, you know, appreciative of those type of moments in, in Miyazaki films. But this one sort of reminded me a little bit more of like um, Castle of Cagliostro uh, in terms of just like the, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit madcap. It's a little bit uh, zany in terms of like the, the propulsion of the narrative. This thing is just like always moving. They're always going from one spot to the next. And there's like, a train chase and like big explosions and it's just, yeah, like really, um, I mean, it's incredible like to watch the, the animation is great all the way through. And, uh, I really enjoyed, I I was laughing a lot because like the, there's a, a gang of sky pirates run by this, uh, matriarchal figure who has like, uh, just a bunch of idiot sons and the, the, all of their little banter back and forth. I, 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 you know, greatly enjoyed, uh, the experience of watching the movie, I just sort of felt myself like thinking as it kept going that like maybe it, it tried to bite off a little bit more than one movie could hold. Mm. Um, Cause Nausicaa I thought was like uh, really, I mean, th- there's a giant scope and, and scale to that movie that all sort of feels of a piece. And this movie castle in the sky, it just felt like there are moments where it sort of uh, dips into different genres just briefly. And um uh, yeah, I, I wish it maybe maybe it was just like a tiny bit more focused, but I still enjoyed the whole thing overall. So, uh, did you watch the English dub or the Japanese dub for this? Yeah, so I wanted to to mention this. I on what was it Tuesday's episode? I was talking with Chris, and I said about Nausicaa that I was watching on HBO Max, and I couldn't. I was disappointed in HBO Max because it appeared to me that you could only watch the English dub, and I was like, oh man, I kind of like watching any movie in the language that it was originally intended to be and just reading subtitles. That's like my preferred experience. 
And I just sort of threw up my shoulders and was like, ah, oh, well, whatever. Like, at least I got to watch the movie kind of thing. And then a, a listener reached out to me on Twitter and said, hey, I just heard that episode. And there actually is a way that you can toggle between the English and Japanese audio on HBO Max. And I just like completely missed it. So thank you to that person for for letting me know. And I will be watching all of the uh, subsequent movies uh, with its original Japanese track. But yes, this this uh, Castle in the Sky viewing experience was the English dub, which is like not my favorite, but uh, Mark Hamill. I was about to say, Mark the, Hamill the, is the, the bad guy. And he's great because Mark yeah. Hamill is just the best voice actor. So... Yeah, definitely. All the other ones like didn't really leave much of a or make much of an impact on me. But Mark Hamill like really like hamming it up, just like, you know, living it up and and uh, doing his full on like Joker cackle at certain points uh, as the bad guy. That was that was kind of an enjoyable uh, aspect. Yeah, I mean, I might be biased because I grew up actually watching a lot of the English dubs um, because I got like the basically collections that were released by Disney back when Disney had the rights to the Studio Ghibli movies. And I think that Disney actually had a good did a good job of doing a lot of the dubs, even though in terms of localization, they kind of went for more jokey um, type of humor and comedy that appealed more to young Ameri- American audiences, which makes sense. But um, I have an affection for them. I kind of have a fondness for them. So for Ghibli movies, I'm actually like, yeah, dubs are all right. I'm, I don't really care. Uh, so I'm not one of the people who are like subs only. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think, yeah, you can get a great experience out of both of them. But um, probably the, the best pure experience is the Japanese dub. But uh, I think even if you go with the English, it's totally fine. Yeah, and I really like the music in this one too. Mm-hmm. Um, the there's like this one, I guess it's it's the theme or like the the uh, I don't know motif or whatever that's just repeated over and over again throughout the movie. I just thought it was like a really beautiful sort of almost haunting piece of music. So Joe Hisaishi is the composer who does all the music for all the Miyazaki films, at least uh, most of the Ghibli films, and he's excellent. He's one of my favorite movie composers too, um, and he has like such a sweet melancholy to all of his works. So yeah. yeah. Um, love Castle in the Sky, by the way. It was one of my first Miyazaki's as well. I got that mm. in a, um, a little sort of omnibus with both that and Spirit Away came together. So fondness, oh, cool. definitely a fondness for Castle in the Sky. You're probably right. Um, I'm too biased to have any criticism for Castle in the Sky. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do like about their arrival in the castle in, in Laputa and how you kind of get a moment to be in awe of this really advanced civilization that has now fallen to ruin and has been taken over by nature. What I really like about that is that you kind of get a sense that this technology um, only hurt the people who invented and created it and they ended up embracing the earthly matters, which is why they abandoned the castle in the first place. And um, the robots that they created that are also incredible weapons are primarily there to, to, you know, raise the gardens and take care of the gardens and the animals, which I think is just really sweet. It's kind of like a um, out of civilization, back to nature kind of thing that a lot of Miyazaki's films do. He's a big environmentalist. Yeah, man, there was like that moment where they sort of realized that one of the robots is there just to protect the the gardens and like uh, the little eggs the, where the birds have laid their eggs in a nest. Um, it, and it seems like there's only one quote unquote living robot left on that on that entire, uh, you know, in that entire floating civilization, it was just like such a uh, sort of quietly heartbreaking moment. It's really, yeah, like you said, it's sweet. It's also 
uh, it has that melancholy you were talking about too. So, so um, Iron Giant totally ripped off Lapida, right? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> I, that was the first thing I saw when or I, I thought of when I saw the design of the of the the robots. I was like, oh wow, yeah, Brad Bird definitely a Miyazaki fan. <laughs> um, the the one thing that I was surprised by, and I didn't really think about this until right now, is just like thinking back on the movie. Like it it starts with um, uh, Patsu, this this little boy. Uh, when he meets uh, Shida for the first time, she wakes up in his house. Basically, he's he's rescued her from this uh, escape that she makes at the very beginning of the movie. And he shows her around his house and he's like, you know, here's this whole backstory with my dad, which comes into play later on. And then at one point he's like, here's this plane that I'm building. Uh, you know, I'm going to one day I'm going to be the one to discover Lapida and like prove that my dad wasn't a liar and that he didn't die for nothing or whatever. And I was sure that like, he was going to get to finish building that plane. And like that, that plane was going to come into uh, effect in the story at some point or whatever, but like they just literally never show it. It just <laughs> remains unfinished. Um, and he, he gets to fly in other ways, but uh, that I was sort of like a, a Chekhov's gun moment where I was like, Oh, this, this has to come back at some point. Right. And it just never does. So uh, I was surprised, uh, I guess in a pleasant way by that, but uh yeah castle in the sky good stuff it's on hbo max check it out check it out in either the english or japanese dub either are fine indeed yeah uh okay i think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of slash film daily you can find more about the movies and and shows that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com. slash film daily is published every weekday bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe to the show on apple google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps and send your feedback questions comments concerns and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.